and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. So many of these prophecies, especially as Israel goes into the into captivity and is suffering and God is making promises to them about what He is going to do after this. If you pay attention, uh, the broad majority of them find their ultimate and final fulfillment in what we could call the time of Christ. The time that began with His coming into the world all the way through to the time of His second coming and even into eternity. There are in the, the eternal reign of Christ, some of these things are still being uh, played out. And so I, I don't think it's out of bounds, and I think a majority of interpreters would agree that when Jeremiah, speaking for the Lord, tells the people of God, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you with knowledge and understanding. This is a promise of the new covenant a gift of pastors or shepherds or elders or bishops or overseers or presbyters, whatever word you want to use. This is a promise that God would give those to His people. Now, that being said, we've been considering what we might call the bedrock of a true gospel church. We've talked about who makes up the general membership of the church and we've begun to talk about how they make up the church. How do they actually come together and constitute a church? And we talked about formal covenantal membership, which requires that a congregation come together, they agree together to give themselves up to the Lord and then to one another, and to enter into a covenant with one another to do all the things that Christ commands His people to do in His churches. And this could look different in different scenarios, but ultimately at the, 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 uh, the birth, the planting of a new church, uh, you're going to see something like this. There has to be somebody somewhere, a group of people, who come together and formally say, we recognize these things, we agree to these things, and we covenant together to form a church. And we talked last Lord's Day about the principle of the keys of the kingdom of heaven which have been given to the church. We noted that membership in a church is a matter of admission. One must be admitted. You don't show up and say, oh, I want to be a member, and that everyone in the church has to bow to your request. But the church is actually the body on earth that must be satisfied to receive its members, to welcome them in. The person seeking membership is not in charge. The church is in charge. Why? Because the keys of the kingdom of heaven were given to the church, not to the individual. And that goes for all members. And we, we noted and, and will continue to note, uh, pastors, elders, uh, any office bearer is first and foremost a member. We all come in the same way. So moving forward, we're, and yet still laying what we could call the groundwork of the matter of the church, I want to read from our our confession. So in the back of the hymnal, 684 is the page number. Just to show you, remember the benefits of reading after a man like Benjamin Keach is he was one of the signatories of our confession of faith. So we can read our confession and then we can read a particular pastor as he articulates what this looked like in his own church. 684 from our confession of faith, paragraph 8 of chapter 26, 
says, A particular church, gathered and completely organized according to the mind of Christ, consists of officers and members. And the officers appointed by Christ to be chosen and set apart by the church, so-called and gathered, for the peculiar administration of ordinances and execution of power or duty which He entrusts them with or calls them to, to be continued to the end of the world are bishops or elders and deacons. So in this paragraph, there's the general membership of the church, if we want to call it that, is now broken up into two groups. Every church consists of members, but those members fall into two categories, officers, and then I'll use the term members even though officers are first and foremost members, but there's the officers and the members, and then the officers are broken into two groups. Bishops or elders, if you're using the King James, you see the word bishops. Uh, elsewhere you see pastors, elders. Uh, all of these words are the same thing. That's why they would say bishops or elders. Pastors or elders. Elders, pastors. Whatever word you want to use, it's the same office. Bishops or elders, and then deacons. So, members, officers, under officers, elders, deacons, or pastors, deacons. So a particular church... That is, a single local church, when gathered together, and the language of the confession is completely organized, that means it has everything Christ would have it to have, has members and officers. Officers or elders and deacons. Now the question for this evening, answered in this paragraph on page 6 from Keech and from our confession, is how does this come about? How does a church come to have its officers? We'll look at the next paragraph in our confession, paragraph 9. The way appointed by Christ for the calling of any person, fitted and gifted by the Holy Spirit, unto the office of bishop or elder in a church, is that he be chosen thereunto by the common suffrage of the church itself, and solemnly set apart by fasting and prayer, with imposition of hands of the eldership of the church, if there be any before constituted therein, and of a deacon that he be chosen by the like suffrage and set apart by prayer and the like imposition of hands. So there, there is a way, and the process is similar for elders and deacons. The church chooses men by what is called common suffrage. We would say voting. Then the, those chosen, the men or men chosen, are set apart by an act of fasting and prayer. And then, if there are any current elders, the current elders would lay hands on the man and pray over them in, a, in an act of what we call ordination. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, the process is going to look different in a situation where a church is being planted or, or doesn't have any elders of its own. How do, we, how do we start? Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? We'll get to that in a little bit. But... Overall, you can see that the process is really quite simple. Not simplistic, not necessarily a quick one. This is not a three-day thing. This is not a weekend endeavor, usually. But it's relatively simple. The congregation selects some men out. Those men are set apart by fasting and prayer. That, that middle part might be the one that takes the longest. What, what does it look like to, to set apart a man for the office with fasting and prayer? And then the time comes for the ordination of that man into the office. That's, what, that's how our confession states it. Now let's see what 
Mr. Keach has to say about this or how he expounds upon this. Again, one of the signatories of our uh, confession itself. Now I'm reading from the book. Paragraph, the, the bottom big paragraph on page 6. He says, A church thus constituted. Stop there. Remember, number 3 on page 6 says, Before each person is admitted as a member in such a church, so constituted. So this church that's been constituted is that church that was talked about under points 1 and 2. This is a church settled, established, covenanted together as a congregation of godly Christians, baptized upon the profession of faith, coming together as a stated assembly. They have by mutual agreement and consent given themselves up to the Lord. They have by mutual agreement and consent given themselves up to one another. They are ordinarily or have agreed to ordinarily meet together for the public service and worship of God. And among them, the Word of God and the sacraments are duly Administer. Now, when you hear those last two, the administration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper and baptism, the administration of the Word of God, when you hear all that, you ought to think, doesn't that require an officer? The, the assumption is, again, a church completely gathered, completely organized, has officers. So we read that a church thus constituted ought to forthwith or ought forthwith to choose them, a pastor, elder, or elders, and deacons. Now the word forthwith means without delay. And again, here, there, there is the assumption that the, it, this is the first planting of a church, the establishment of a church where there, there was no church. You've got a, a group of people, you have no officers, Keech is saying one of the first things you need to do without delay, as quick as you can, Forthwith, choose officers. And he lists those two offices, pastor, elder, or elders, and deacons. Now, notice how he says that. A, pastor, elder, or elders, plural. Now, this is important. A plurality is desired. And we could go into the scriptural proofs for this, but pretty much... Throughout the scriptures, you see a plurality of elders, pastors, same thing, in each church. But when, he, when we read a pastor, elder, or elders, what he's pointing out or, or addressing is that a singularity, one, that's acceptable if that's all you have. If you don't have two, if you don't have three, if you don't have seven, but you have one, you don't say, well, I guess we can't do anything. No, you Put into place what you have. Again, we do see the apostles appointing elders in every church in Scripture. But we also see, in Revelation 2 and 3, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Smyrna, to the angel of, church of the church of Thyatira. And it is broadly understood and recognized that the angel of the church was the pastor of that church. So historically... You do see both. You see churches with a plurality. You see churches with a singular elder. The plurality was always the goal, but they understood if we don't have two, we only got one, then that's what we work with. But the, the point being, you need to have officers. You need to have someone in place. 
a few things to keep in mind in this regard. Number one, it would be better to have no pastor than to have unqualified pastors. I'll repeat that in different forms later on. It would be better to have none than to find somebody who's not, un, who's not qualified and say, look, we just need somebody to do the job. No, you don't want that. And secondly, and related to that is, Christ alone gives these men to His churches. You have to keep that in mind. Christ alone gives officers to His churches. Ephesians 4.11, speaking of the Lord Jesus, the, the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus says, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. And those, those last four words, the shepherds and teachers, is to be understood as what we would refer to as the pastors or elders of our present day. Who gives these to the church? Christ gave. Christ gives. Just as we would say no man could make himself an apostle, we would also say no man can make himself a pastor. And we would also say, just as no church could make a man an apostle, so also no church can make a man a pastor as, as far as the, the giftedness and fittedness for the office. Christ gives these. That's why Jeremiah 3.15 points that out. God says, I will give you shepherds. You don't make shepherds, I will give. Now, I can hear the objection. It says, we read from Keech, the church must choose. And we read in our confession, they are to be chosen. He is to be chosen thereunto. So, it sounds like we just pick somebody. Well, here's how I would respond to that. We need to understand that this choosing is, is, is really an act of corporate recognition and reception of what Christ has already given. We're not picking a man and say, saying, we'll make him this. What the, the job of the congregation is, is to look and see and recognize Christ has gifted and fitted this man. Christ is clearly giving this man. It is our duty to come together and say, we corporately receive. We recognize the gifts and we receive the man. Now, what does that require? Well, it requires that the church first be praying to this end. We need to be praying that Christ would make clear where His gifts are at work. Sometimes it's hard for us to tell. Uh, and we were saying this afternoon, I, I believe that this is uh, probably primarily what the Lord meant when He said, pray that there would be laborers to go into the harvest. Who are the primary laborers of the harvest? It's the, the pastors, the, the, the officers of Christ's church, those sent to preach the gospel. Well, we have to be praying. Lord, help us to see. Is there something we're not seeing? Is there something that we're, we think we see but is not really there? Make it clear to us. It requires that the church be educated on what that giftedness and fitness looks like. Do we even know what we're looking for? Well, he, he speaks well. He has nice suits. Is that what we're looking for? That's not what the Bible says. We have to be educated on what it looks like. And then, thirdly, a church, if they already have elders, 
They have to trust that the elders already in place will be able to, to lead and help in the examination process. Again, it would be better to want elders and not have them than to have elders that you don't want. So the church has a job to do, but that requires the church be prepared to do that. And the same is true for deacons. We read of the first deacons in Acts 6 verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. The church had the job. Pick them out. But who were they picking out? Well, they had to find men who met the qualifications listed. The qualifications given by God, the being full of the Spirit, a good reputation, wisdom. And then the apostles appointed them to the particular task. Now, we'll talk more about both of those offices in the weeks to come. For now, we're just noting the way these men come to bear or to hold the office. And Keach says, we read of no other officers or offices abiding in the church. So there are no longer apostles. There are no longer prophets. Most of the time you get a good hearty amen from Baptists with that, in that regard. There are also no longer any evangelists by office. What are you, sir? Well, I'm evangelist. I just travel around you. You're probably not. You might be a preacher. What church sent you? Those are the types of questions we should ask from a biblical perspective. That, that office is not continued. There are not separate offices for ruling elder and teaching elder. That, that is... Uh, uh, Presbyterian, the Presbyterian view, you have ruling elders and you have teaching elders and that's two separate offices and, then, and many times those are even separate from the pastor or you might have the pastor and then over here you have the elders as distinct offices. That's not, you don't see that anywhere in Scripture. There are no deaconesses or pastrixes. Lady preachers, lady pastors, we don't see that in Scripture. There's no office in the Bible for a worship leader, children's director, youth pastor, all of that stuff. There are two offices. You're either a pastor or you're a deacon. And that's what we have. Those are the offices of the church. Now, continuing, and, and we're going to look at some scripture here. Keach says, what kind of men they ought to be and how qualified is laid down by Paul in his letters to Timothy and Titus. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, beginning at verse 2, verses 2 through 7. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for 
If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. All right, there's Paul to Timothy. Now let's turn to Titus chapter 1. Just a few pages over, you'll see some overlap and you'll see some differences. Titus 1, verses 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, Paul writing to Titus, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, or his children are faithful, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, we're, we won't do a study in all of those. Uh, I've recommended to the men, I would recommend to everyone, Jeff Pollard uh, at Mount Zion Bible Church of Chapel Library fame, uh, not too long ago, did a, a very lengthy series walking through these qualifications. There, it was very helpful if you're interested in that. <clears throat> and, and at some point we will come back to those, these passages. But that's the qualifications for elders. Now I'll go back to, to 1 Timothy and we'll see the section dealing with the deacons. 1 Timothy 3 verses 8 through 13. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless." Their wives, likewise, or literally, likewise the women, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. I, I, we've talked about this before. I, I do not believe that the women that are described here are uh, deaconesses, there's no office of a deaconess. I'm personally convinced that these are the widows of chapter 5. Let a widow be enrolled, etc., etc. This, this was a, a class of elderly, proven, faithful Christian women whose husbands were no longer living who could give themselves to the service of the church. 
But we have there the offices of elder and deacon and their qualifications. And so as the church chooses their officers, what they're doing is they're looking to recognize these qualifications. These must be found in the man or men that they put forward. Now, we, we know that no man is going to meet these standards perfectly besides Jesus Christ Himself. So if we're looking for perfection, well, we will continue on until uh, the Lord returns with no officers. But at the same time, no, no man should even be considered if he doesn't have at least some observable, verifiable evidence of these qualities. In, in Maybe even in seed form. It, it looks like maybe he's got these gifts and these qualities. And... Those things will be developed and they'll grow over time. Keech again addresses the job of the church when he says, Moreover, they, that is the church, they are to take special care that bishops, or overseers, elders, as well as the deacons, have in some competent manner all those qualifications. So again, the church has to know what these qualifications are, what they really mean. And that means that the church has been able to look and they have reason to believe that this man is competent in these qualifications. One person might suggest a man, if when that man is suggested, everybody else says, what? Well, that's probably he's probably not proven competent in this regard. Usually, it's kind of like a no-brainer. We've seen the gifts. It's clear that the Lord is gifting and pushing in this direction and we're recognizing that. It's not, well, let's just throw him in there and see what he's got. No, this is, this is not third string on the baseball field. Um, so, they have to know. And this is why it's often the case that current elders, if there are any, are to take the lead in examining and vetting and training and preparing a man for the office. Because really, it is only the standing elders who know the real difficulties of what the office might present. Only the standing elders really understand what a man might be and, or, or must be. And many times the church will see or feel one thing and the elders know a different story. The elders might know something you may not know. The church makes educated selections. But this also doesn't mean, the way this is played out, this doesn't mean that a man has to sit quietly until the congregation has the opportunity to make a selection. Um, many churches will have, especially with, the, with deacons, they will be on a rotation, and every so often there will be a time where you write in names, you suggest who should be put forward for deacons, or maybe they, a need arises, we need deacons. So everybody writes in or, or puts forward some names and... and I, I guess in, in theory that could happen with uh, pastors as well. Uh, the, the, the man, a man, if he aspires to the office, he doesn't just sit quietly waiting for nomination day. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And he should make that known to the elders who can help get the process started or make the process or help the process die a quick and humane death. And there are times when somebody comes forward and says, hey, I'm aspiring to this, and the elders have to say very, have to very calmly and, and graciously help that aspiration to die a quick and humane death because in their mind they're thinking, brother, you're, you just, you're not ready. You don't have what it takes. Well, whatever the case might be, 
This also doesn't mean that the congregation has to wait before they're asked before they suggest men for the office. Any member or members may believe that they see some gifts and and qualifications and fittedness for the office in a man. And they can come to the elders and say, Hey, what about so-and-so? Have you considered this man? And again, the elders can help get that process started or they can help it die a quick and humane death. Again, many times, the elders, because of their role and because of what they do, know more about the average church member than everybody else, or or know more than the average church member about a particular individual. And so somebody might say, "I, I think this man. And the elders might know some things that would immediately disqualify the man. Well, it wouldn't be right for them to say, well, you know what I know about this man's history. He's done this and this and this and this. Well, that wouldn't be proper, you see. So it might be the, the duty of the elders to say, I hear what you're saying. We'll, we'll talk this through. And the congregation has to trust that that's going to be dealt with properly. Paul says in Titus 1.7 that an overseer, as God's steward must be above reproach. You see, the elders are stewards set over God's house. It's their job to make sure the house gets its food at the proper time, and it's their job to oversee the appointment of other service servants in this work. And that's why they have to help here. The elders are overseers or stewards, which means they do have a position of ruling over the church in these affairs. In addition to that, the elders are members And that means they have a say in the uh, common suffrage of the congregation in the process as members, but also uh, an overseeing uh, job as elders. But assuming that a man or men have been put forward, they've been found adequately gifted and fitted for the office, which may take a time, a season of training and preparation, a time for the elders to really hammer in on specific details of the office and the ministry to make sure this man's thinking properly, he's gifted properly for not just standing in front of people and preaching, but other things that are far more important than that. But after all of that, and that's recognized and confirmed by the elders, then there comes a day of what he calls here elevation. To, they, he is to be, or they elevate them to their office. In a day of solemn prayer and fasting, they elevate them to their office, whether pastors or deacons. This is a day of solemn prayer and fasting. I, I would suggest the whole process from start to finish should be bathed in prayer and even fasting. But the day of installation is also to be a day of prayer and fasting of seeking the Lord to guide the whole process and to bless it. Now, how many of us have grown up in churches where men were put in office and we said, on the day when he was put in office, I remember it because we were all, we all spent the day in prayer and fasting. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. We read in Acts chapter 13, verses 2 and 3, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. The action of sending men into the ministry was bathed before and after with prayer and fasting. In other words, what we need to see, at least in that description, is that this is a very serious matter. This is perhaps one of the most serious things that a church does. 
Keach goes on. They, that is the men who are being put into office, they, accepting the office, must be ordained with prayer and laying on of hands of the eldership, being first proved and found fit persons for so sacred an office. So they accept the office. In 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If a man aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. The men to be vetted according to the qualifications are men who aspire to the office. They want it. They want the work. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 5 with me. First Peter 5, verses 1 and 2. So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Here's the exhortation. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So they are to do this negatively, not under compulsion, not because you're being forced, but willingly, intentionally, purposefully, voluntarily, give me the work, I want to do it. And not for gain, not for the money, but eagerly, zealously, readily, I want the work. I don't, I'm not here for the money, I want the work, that's what he's saying. This is how the elders should act, how they should serve. Another passage that is helpful in a maybe a roundabout way, Hebrews thirteen seventeen, speaking of the elders, let them do this with joy, or the uh, those who have the rule over you, let them do this with joy, and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I think we could deduce from that passage that doing the work of a pastor with groaning is not advantageous to the people. This is to no advantage to you. It doesn't help them if they have to do it with groaning, begrudgingly, with force. Again, it's better to want elders you don't have than to have elders you don't want. And it's more advantageous for the church for a man to desire the office and not have it than to have the office and not want it. And the same would go for deacons, maybe not to the the same extreme, it, it does seem like in Acts chapter 6, the church put forward the men who were qualified and the apostles said, here's what we need you to do. Just go, go make sure the widows get their, their daily distribution. Uh, they, they didn't ask if they really wanted to do the work or not, but it, it seems like in, a, in, a, in an office that is a, a office of leadership in sacrificial service to the church and other people, that if somebody is not gifted or fitted or desirous of the work, of serving others in that way, they would make an absolutely miserable deacon. There has to be some desire, some acceptance of the office. You do have uh, historical accounts of uh, stories, men like Calvin, I don't know all the details, but he didn't want to return to, I think it was Geneva, he didn't want to come back and, and one of his friends said, well, if you don't come back, you know, I'm going to do terrible things to you. Basically, like, you just get back over here. The people need you after he had been uh, ran off. Uh, but 
those types of exceptions, and I think ultimately, deep down, we would, Calvin would say, I, I, I desired the office, I desired the work. Those, those types of what we might call exceptions are just that. They, they prove the rule. Generally, the man ought to desire the work. He ought to accept the office. They accepting the office must be ordained with prayer and laying on of hands of the eldership. This is ordination, and a lot is said about ordination. Ordination is a prayer where hands are laid on to sort of finalize and formalize before the eyes of the congregation that this man is being placed into office. The laying on of hands is really a symbolic or, or representative act. It, it confers no grace. It confers, confers no gifts. If a man is not gifted or fitted for the office, ordination is not going to do anything for him. My hands are not going to give anybody what they need to be uh, a servant in this regard. If a man is not a gift of Christ to the church, being ordained will not make him a gift of Christ to the church. It will make him a burden to the church. That's why it's important, again, that the church recognize and receive what Christ has already given. So the, the culmination of the choosing and vetting and, and preparation process comes in the form of what we call ordination, the prayer and the laying on of hands that usually takes place in what we call an ordination service where there are charges to the, uh, I think the word is ordinand, the person being ordained, and, and charges to the congregation. Here's the... Here's the Man's job, here's the congregation's job and duty to the man, and then there's an ordination. But there, there's uh, an official way of going about that so that when everybody leaves, they know what just happened. You, you, you don't want people showing up saying, oh, we, we got a new deacon, I guess. Well, that's interesting. Oh, this guy's our pastor now? That's odd. No, it, it needs to be a, a formal process that makes it clear to everyone what has happened. Acts chapter 6, verse 6 of the deacons, it says, They set these before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And Paul said to Timothy, either speaking, I would think, primarily of elders, but it could apply to both offices. 1 Timothy 5, 22, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself Pure. Well, what's the laying on of hands? What, he, what he's saying is don't bring men into the office quick. Don't get in a hurry on this. A lot of times we want to ask, what's taking so long? Or why doesn't so-and-so just do it? My goodness. Can't somebody get up there and do this or that? Well, because the reproach that is brought upon the office or the church or Christ because of an, Ill, an unqualified, ill-prepared man being thrust into the office comes back on the heads of those who didn't do their due diligence in evaluating him. Why do we not get in a hurry? Because we, if we get in a hurry and we mess up, it comes back on us. It's a serious thing. And this is why Keach repeats this idea, being first proved and found fit persons for so sacred an office. Being proved, being tried, being tested. Both offices of elder and deacon require that a man not only show some private evidences of gifts and graces, it can't just be, well, so-and-so saw him one time and he held the door for his wife and they thought, man, what if we had a man like that behind the pulpit? Well, there needs to be a little more, so let's test this man. Let's see what he's got. He has to be tried with regard to some of the duties required by the office. 
of deacons, Paul says, let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. You see, deacons primarily deal with, uh, historically deal with finances and mercy ministry and things like that. Not, not weed eating and light bulb changing. They deal with the ministry of the church. And it's important that a deacon prove himself blameless in those areas. If you, we might think a man would be a great deacon. And yet we find out he doesn't know how to budget, budget and manage his own uh, finances at his house. Well, he's probably not going to do very good with the finances of the church. You see? So those things have to be proven, tested. If deacons must be tested, then surely those who aspire to the office of overseer must prove themselves competent in areas or in the areas in which they will be laboring. Now, this could be done in, in a, a plethora of different ways. Doctrinal examination, listening to the man preach, interviewing his wife and children if he has them, talking to other people that know him. What do his co-workers say to, uh, about him? What do his employer or what does his employer say about him? Find out what you can about this man. We need to see what, what kind of character he has. And again, this is why it's important that a man is first a church member, then he comes in to the office of pastor. He's not distinct from the church. He's a member of the church. And throughout the life of a church, you get to know a man and you find out what he's made of. You know, you can see him interacting with his wife and his children. You, and, and a lot of this background searching and inquiry is made so much easier. We know the man. He's proven himself faithful over the years. Why would he not be placed into the office? Again, why is all of this so important? Be number one, because of the high calling of the office. It's a big deal. Number two, because of the influence of the man as a leader and ruler in Christ's church. This man, these men, especially when it comes to elders, pastors, they will potentially be leading, guiding, and teaching our children and grandchildren. We're not trying to figure out, can this man preach two or three or seven good sermons? He's going to be shepherding our families, extended families, and so on, as the Lord brings in people into the church. Thirdly, it's important because this man, as a man approved by the church, will potentially be going outside of the fold to preach and teach in other churches or maybe even to plant another church in another place in the world. Again, it's not just can he preach a sermon on Sunday. This is a massive undertaking. You, you, a church down the street or around the corner needs pulpit supply and you've got a man you can send. Well, I want to know that he's not going to say something heretical or crazy. That, that people are not going to say, that church down there, they're a bunch of loonies if that's what they're putting out. We want to know that the man is, is capable of, of bringing a good reputation upon the church and upon Christ. Oftentimes, we're really selfish in our desire for more elders. Not really understanding what it means for a man to be recognized and received as a gift from Christ to the church and the far-reaching implications of that affirmation. Many times we want more elders because we want more elders. Well, what about your children? What about your grandchildren? What about the church down the street? What about the unreached people group that that man might be called to go minister amongst? You've got to think about all of that. Apart from scandalous sin or personal withdrawal, the man stepping down or, or resigning or, or retiring or whatever that might be, apart from those things, this man will hold this office for the rest of his life. The, the idea of cycle in, cycle out, cycle in, that's not biblical. 
Is the man called and gifted or not? Did Christ give the man or not? Well, Christ doesn't give and then take back. He's going to be doing this forever. That's what you're looking for is, do we have a man gifted and called and fitted to do this for the rest of his life? That's what we're looking for. It's important. It's a big deal. Keach concludes this section by stating, therefore, such are very disorderly churches who have no ordained pastor or pastors. They are not acting according to the rule of the gospel, having something lacking. A true and orderly gospel church should choose out for itself officers. And again, he's not saying they're, they're worthless or less than nothing. Everybody should leave. What he's saying is Christ wants these things. And when a, when a church, whether it's a brand new planting with no officers or a church that has had officers, but, then, but now they need more or uh, one has retired and they're looking, they're trying to bring in more, hopefully nobody in the church is saying, well, it's no big deal. We could go on for years like this. Most churches recognize we need a pastor. We need somebody. Why? Because this is the structure given by Christ. We want that. If a church is just a Sunday morning preaching station, then none of this would be that important. If the church were like many of our, our uh, conference uh, settings, well, none of this would be important. You walk in the room, you sit down. He preaches, you get up, you walk out. You could show up on Sunday, sit down, he preaches. You get up, you walk out. If that's all the church was, none of this would matter. Can the man preach a biblical sermon? I don't care about his life. I don't care about any of that. Just can he open up the text and apply it? If that's all that he was doing, well, none of this would matter. But because the church is a body, an institution of Christ acting with the power of Christ on earth, wielding the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the ministry of Christ on the earth, the missions agency on the earth, the church, that institution ordained by Christ to do the business of Christ in the world, which is far more than just a sermon on Sunday, then it's important that there be a structure, that these things be properly formed together. You, the, the comparison could be made of, of, of an actual big uh, Fortune 500 company versus two little girls at a lemonade stand. Two little girls want to start a lemonade stand on the side of the road. They don't need to figure out, hey, who's going to be the boss here? Who's, who's, who's going to be writing our paychecks? When do we get paid after all? None of that matters. They don't have to have that structure. They've got to have a, a sign and some decent lemonade, and they just stand there. That's all that matters. They don't have to have a bank account. They don't have to have anything. Tax ID number, forget it. But if you're starting a legitimate corporation, and a, a business that's going to be functioning in the world according to the laws of the land and is going to be permeating the economy, then you've got to have some sort of structure. You've got to have some identifiable form. You're going to have to figure out who's going to, who's going to be... Writing the checks. Who's going to be taking out the trash? Who's going to paint the stripes on the parking lot? Who's going to change out the light bulbs? Who's, you've got to have all that. You see, the two different things. It's crucial that a church choose and appoint officers because the church is so important in the world. Now, a few, this might feel like just sort of scattered ideas here at the end, and that's because it's what they are. Um, a verse that is crucial to this whole idea is Acts 14.23, which says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That word appointed, when they had appointed elders, means literally 
to choose by the outstretched hand. We would say to vote. Raise your hand. Uh, and that's an exercise of church power, to choose by the outstretched hand. Now, interestingly, you see this type of voting. I'll say it this way. You see voting. In, in this regard, the choosing of officers or appointing men for a service. You know, they would select out men, carry this letter to this church, and so forth. Select out men, hey, you carry this money to this place. Choosing of officers or men for service. And then secondly, uh, excommunication. We talked about that last week. The, the congregation coming together by mutual consent to formally remove somebody, and, and by default, bringing in members, the congregation wields the keys. Choosing officers and then opening and closing the doors of the church. Those are the only two places in Scripture where you see the congregation voting. Period. Nowhere else. So, color the carpet. You've heard the, the famous, you know, silly things that churches vote about. Color the carpet. Uh, you name it. I don't, I don't even know all of them. Silly things. Are we going to vote on this? Uh, are we going to vote on what color uh, pews we're going to have? We didn't, we didn't take a vote on whether we're going to get green pews. We said, hey, there's some green pews on, on Marketplace. Let's go get them. Just do it. Um, the, only, the only time you see a church voting is the choosing of its officers and then uh, removing and, again, by default, bringing in its members. But that's where that idea comes from. People will say, well, I don't see voting anywhere in the New Testament. Well, Acts 14.23 is one example where you see literally voting by raising hands. Uh, another question uh, in, or, or matter. In the situation envisioned here in this book, it's a brand new church. Um, and there are no elders. So who are the elders who would ordain the first officers in a church where there are no officers? The, 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 the chicken or the egg question. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Well, there are a couple options. First, elders who are a part of the planting or overseeing church. Churches should be involved in the planting of other churches. And a part of the duty of that overseeing or planting church is that their elders oversee and help the, the new church raise up and appoint their men. So when the ordination service time comes, who lays hands on these men? Potentially those elders of that planting or overseeing church. Or it is also acceptable that the church as a congregation select somebody in there or, or men, some, uh, a man or some men, to visibly execute the wish of the church upon those men from their own number in, in the absence of any elders. I would say in our day, it, it's not like we're in a place where there are no churches anywhere. If, if we were in a place where there's a, not a church in sight, we don't even know another Christian, then I would say the church could collectively say, hey, we want you to lay hands on him. We all agree this man's going to lay hands on this man. In our day, there, there are churches all over. And there are men all over who will say, I'll, I'll drive two hours, three hours, five hours, whatever I have to do to come help in this circumstance. I, I think that's the best option uh, when a, a brand new church is being established. What about all the members who come along after that appointment? Do they not have a say in who their elders are? And the answer is yes, you do. 
Every member, when they join, remember, they must agree to submit to the church, the members who are already there, meaning the members who preceded them in the selection of the officers who were there when they arrived. They must agree to submit to the leadership of the church, which is already there when they arrive. To join a church is to cast your vote for those officers. To enter into the membership of a church is to say, I choose this man or these men, these elders, these deacons to be the officers over me. I submit the spiritual oversight of myself and my family to them as well as to the other church members. So yeah, everybody gets a say. If you come to a place, a church, and, and you say, I don't, I don't, I don't like the, the, the officer situation here, then the best thing to do is don't join that church, right? But when you join, you are casting your vote. So do you have a say? Absolutely. You have a say. In conclusion, a true and orderly gospel church has both members and officers. The members must choose their officers. And this is not one of the questions that I, I stated, but that's, that's the order. So let's envision a brand new church plant. You've got a group of people, okay? What comes first? Do they pick their pastor first? Or do they constitute as a congregation first? They constitute as a congregation first. Who, who is going to be a part of that number? Their pastor, that the man who's going to be leading them. He becomes a member, and then those people agree to put that man in the office as a church. The church puts the man in the office. So um, the members choose their officers. Uh, they must choose based on biblical qualifications, which means they must know the biblical qualifications. This act of the church confers no gifts. The appointment of men by the church is an act of recognizing the gifts given by Christ and a corporate reception of a gift from Christ to the church. So, um, and we were talking this afternoon that sometimes we, we think uh, in our minds if we say election or voting, that could put a sour taste in some of our mouths. And it's, the, the taste is getting more and more sour by the year. The, the, the idea is not, well, let's, let's just pool everybody and, 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 and the way it typically turns out is uh, create uh, parties in the church where one party puts forward their man, another party puts forward their man, and then those men are in competition. That's, that's not what we mean when we, we talk about voting or electing or choosing officers. It is a, a corporate unanimous, uh, by the raising of the hand, recognition, we consent and receive this gift that Christ has clearly given to us as a church. That's the picture. So, you know, there's no, you don't have to worry about the stop the steal or whatever that. You know, we, I think those people are trying to, you know, steal votes or whatever. Um, it, it, don't think in that, in, in those terms. Christ said, I will give shepherds after my heart. I will give them. He gives them, and we receive. Well, with that, let's pray and we'll be dismissed.